Hello, everyone. Welcome and welcome back to Alpha Bunga Bunga, the global politics podcast at the end of the end of history. I'm Alex Hochley. I'm in Sao Paulo, Brazil. This podcast is produced by myself, Philip Cunliffe, who's in Canterbury, and George Horror, who's in London. Uh, today, this episode is about British history. Uh, we're going to be talking to David Edgerton, professor at King's College London and a historian who's written various books, including The Rise and Fall of the British Nation, The Shock of the Old, Technology and Global History Since 1900, Britain's War Machine, Weapons, Resources, and Experts in the Second World War, amongst others. Um, because it's primarily about Britain, I'm going to be passing on to Phil and George, who are going to do most of the talking here. So as people who follow me on social media will know, I'm not shy about sharing my views on things, um, including on books I don't particularly care for. <laughs> but I can honestly say that uh, this book, the one we're talking about this evening, The Rise and Fall of the British Nation, is one of the best books I've read in a long time. There's a counterintuitive insight or a shift in perspective or critique of the conventional wisdom of British history that trips off virtually every other page. Uh, it's a book about myth and reality, uh, and in this case, um, the myth of British decline and also the reality of British, the enduring character of British state power, military power, economic growth and industrial expansion. So there's a lot to talk about. Yeah, I think it's it's probably worth just framing this, particularly for non-British um, uh, listeners. What's at, what's at stake here? I think the standard account of um, British history that you get at school, or at least I can speak for myself, is kings and queens and second world war those are the only two things that you're allowed to study and and by kings and queens it's almost always henry the eighth and his uh, his various wives um but the this of course is 20th century um british history and i think it's you know the standard account of of 20th century british history probably features the key dates maybe 1914 um 1945 1979 1989 so that you know the the end of the the long 19th century in 1914 1945 the, the kind of the the end of the second world war and the building of the welfare state 1979 when everything gets uh, overturned by thatcher and then 1989 which is kind of the end of um the end of history or the the kind of the 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 movement into um the 90s and the noughties which is this uh kind of much more staid period of kind of global neoliberalism. So, yeah, I think this book deliberately sets out to 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 question that and to provide a new um, a new periodization or a new a new approach um, to 20th century, 20th century British history. And so much of um, world history, simply by virtue of Britain's place in the world throughout the 20th century, is obviously refracted through British history itself. The world wars imperial um, or the rise and fall of the European colonial empires, the um, rel relative relegation of Europe as the center of the world economy, mm -hmm. um, Britain's diminution as a superpower. The rise of global neoliberalism is often told as the story of Thatcher in Britain and Reagan in the US. Yeah. And then the development of a new kind of social democracy, the third way as envisioned by Tony Blair and New Labour in the late 90s and early 2000s, a new form of um, centre-left politics. So so much of the theme, all the many themes that we talk about consistently on the podcast are refracted through the history of Britain in the 20th century. And that's all we're going to... Yeah, uh, David. 
I guess it always feels like you know the history of your of your country is um, no other country lives in its history quite so much as as Britain. But all of these questions, and I think this come you know this come through in the the, the chat, they're all still relevant today. Uh, questions about decline is you know is Britain still a great power? Um, the questions of welfare or warfare, which were taken in the book, the idea of RNHS and the centrality of of the welfare state to the kind of the British collective identity even today um all of these things i think uh, which are so important today are all discussed and dissected in the book and uh, many of the conventional wisdoms also overturned and it, it seems i mean you know phil especially has been going on to, about this book to me for quite a while and you know often the emphasis on like britain's role in the world how powerful or, or not britain is uh, often plays into I, if we're talking about contemporary politics into kind of you know, the Brexiteers talking up Britain and how powerful Britain is and seemingly uh, Remainers trying to do down Britain and saying, well, we know we need, we're actually part of Europe. We, you know, we're not mm. that important. And actually, this book seems to kind of flip that on its head in, in certain ways, um, or at least ask probing questions about exactly that sort of portrayal. So I think there's a lot of contemporary relevance to how we interpret Britain's history and Britain's role in the world. Yeah, absolutely. And um, yeah, we've got we've got David to talk us through that stuff. Hi, David. Thanks for joining us. Thanks very much. Look forward to the discussion. So to get started, I actually had occasion in, in preparation for this to revisit uh, your book, The Shock of the Old, which I which I read around the time it came out. Um, and it was kind of not quite nice to revisit it. Um, and so you're obviously known as a, as a historian of technology uh, with books such as uh, The Shock of the Old and as well as on Britain's 20th century warfare state and British technological history and so on. Um, what prompted you to compose the more, I suppose, more synthetic history of Britain over the 20th century? Well, the honest answer is, as I was uh, asked to to do it, it didn't occur to to me that uh, that I should do something as uh, madly ambitious as that. But I've I've been writing in a reasonably synthetic way about the history of 20th century Britain really since my first book, uh, which is called England and the Aeroplane, which came out in 1991, which argued for the existence of a powerful uh, British warfare state and. Uh, uh, for a, 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 a technocratic state, particularly after after 1945. So um, this this book stands in in in, in quite a line of, uh, of of books questioning the standard narratives of uh, 20th century British uh, British history. And I, I saw the um, the form of the national history as a, a good way to get my story across to. A, a wider academic public and indeed mm. a, a wider general public as well. So I was using a, a conventional form to tell a non-conventional story. So uh, the story of Britain in the 20th century, it's typically seen, um, this story seen as the long decline of the British Empire and Britain's diminution from the status of global superpower, um, despite victory in two world wars. Um, and I was thinking also, I was trying to think, about um, comparative decline, kind of, I suppose, and with the partial exception, perhaps, of the Suez Crisis, Britain endures no colonial defeats on the scale of um, Dian Bien Phu or Algeria, as, um, let's say, the French endured. So when I was preparing notes for this podcast, I was trying to think of any other country that has endured such a radical diminution in its global significance and clout in such a short space of time. And the only country I could think of is perhaps Russia in recent times, or maybe China in the 19th century, 
and perhaps um, Germany in the 20th. Um, it's not something that you talk about a great deal in the book. And I was wondering if you think there's any value in undertaking such comparisons. I would add, I would add France uh, to, to that uh, to that to that list. I mean, um, uh, relative decline is not uh, is not unique to to the British case. I mean, I think the book is comparative in lots of ways. I just I swear don't uh, don't advertise uh, the fact. <laughs> um, I think I think the comparative stuff is there, but but the, the bigger point is is that I think we we generally take a very parochial view of British history, and if we made these comparisons, a lot of the sillier arguments would would um, would simply not uh, not not arise. But let me just put in a, a, a slight caveat on 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 your, your framing of the of, of the of the of the of the book, or uh, as as a contribution to 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 a, to a debate about uh, decline. I mean, that's just part of the story because there's a very 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 strong strand of twentieth uh, century British historiography which. Is a, is, a, is a positive story, uh, and it's the story of the rise of the welfare state, at, at least until the uh, the Thatcher year. So we've we've had two stories running uh, alongside each other, and indeed combined this this the rise of welfare story and the decline of uh, uh, power story. And uh, I I want to criticise both uh, stories as well as the the standard interconnected um, uh, uh, variant of these uh, of these of these stories so the whole thrust of your argument is so and I you know I take obviously take your point what you're saying about the rise of welfare and um, Thatcherism and so on um, but a lot of the the thrust of your argument seems to be to cut against the story of Britain's decline in the 20th century um, and this narrative of declinism. Well, um, I'm not. So I'm not sure about that. You see, I, I, I think a, a right. lot of reviewers have seen it in that uh, way. Um, I mean, often, often people who are uh, who still think that the declinist historiography um, is a, is a, is a living force. I mean, I, I, I think it isn't a living force. I, I think I and others disposed of it fairly effectively in the, in the early 1990s. Uh, so, so I want, that's what, the reason I want to resist this, uh, this, uh, this framing of the, of, of, of the book, because it engages in, in a way it doesn't engage in the decline debate. Um, uh, but it, 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 it does engage in, in, in a lot of other stories, some of which are related to the decline debate, but the stories that stand on, on, on their own. I mean, the nature of the British uh, uh, um, nation, the, uh, the nature of the British Empire, uh, uh, British exceptionalism, uh, all sorts of all sorts of issues. Um, uh, I, I hope uh, come to the come to the fore in 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 the in, in the book. Uh, I mean, it's certainly not framed around. Um, the decline issue. It is. It is. Uh, you know, one of the, one of the literatures that I criticise, and I'd say two things about declinism. I think one is that um, that it um, it set out to explain something which didn't happen: uh, the absolute decline of the United Kingdom, or versions of the relative decline which didn't happen either. And it typically uh, explained that. Uh, that decline that didn't happen with explanations that don't work. Now, uh, in most of the historiography today, the um, the idea that Britain declined is, is is not one that people entertain. So that people aren't setting out to explain the, the British decline. But a lot of the explanations of the British decline have acquired a life of their of their own. Uh, certain kinds of stories about um, the British elite. 
uh, about British schools, about British universities, about British business. Um, and if I if I take anything on related to decline in in, in this book, it's it's uh, it's it's some of those uh, some of those stories that are not necessarily regarded as declinist. Um, at all, which is why some decliners come back at me and say, well, you haven't talked about the city. Isn't it obvious that the city has held back British industry uh, right through the 20th century? And so, well, uh, no, it isn't. And um, uh, and, I, and I do argue against that thesis. Isn't it interesting that you haven't uh, noticed uh, that? And so on. So I suppose the, I mean, I, you obviously, I mean, um, I defer to your um characterization of the historiography and I know from my own work um your you um were publishing materials on liberal liberal militarism and the British warfare state in the early 1990s so um but notwithstanding that the it's I mean I suppose the historiographical debate is separate from the debate in popular consciousness and this is what I think the way in which decline plays into um continuing popular consciousness of Britain's place in the world, how it's changed over time, um, how the media frames particular narratives, how politicians frame uh, the story of what's happened to Britain over recent decades. That still seems to me to be very powerful and important independently of the independently of the um, uh, the historiographical development, even right up to you think of, I mean, think of Dominic Cummings, for instance, who he seems to have played into those um, old stories about the effete character of British um, schools and higher education compared to the superior technical and scientific training of Britain's competitors. So all of those tropes seem to me to be very present still in public debate. Yes, but one has to be very careful. I mean, you're absolutely right about Dominic Cummings. He is a he is a a, a low grade. Um, C.P. Snow, and, and C.P. Snow is a pretty low-grade intellectual himself. But there is, uh, but there's there's a lot more to be said about um, uh, uh, thinking about decline in in the in, in the in the present conjuncture. One of the most interesting developments has been the um, the use of the term uh, "declinist" by by Brexiters you know, to condemn Remainers, and there's a and they've developed this historical argument that 1960s declinism was the ideology of people who wanted to go into the uh, the common market, as it was uh, typically called then, and that Remainers today are also declinists, and declinists are people who do Britain down. Yeah? Uh, uh, Brexiters see the inherent strength of the United Kingdom and argue that it that that strength needs to be released uh, through 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 brexit so i have had the rather interesting experiences of some of my my own work being taken up by by brexiteers precisely because it is um is seen as uh, as anti anti-declinist so just one so just one thing though before um before we get into brexit so because it seems to me um though you do take up a narrative of decline towards the end of the book um, you're very um, scathing about uh, the, tran the political transformations wrought under New Labour. You're attentive to deindustrialization and all the social and economic problems of those regions um, that came in its wake. Um, you're very sensitive to the um, kind of transformation of Britain's culture and what you call style as the neo-Edwardian character of Britain in the um, kind of global era of the 1990s and early 2000s. So, I mean, you ex would you accept that it's 
but it is part also a story of declass to kind of uh, a myth or a relative um, story, but an absolute story of decline in parts of Britain. Uh, in in parts of Britain, yes, but but my story isn't a story of decline over the last uh, few decades. I, I I certainly point out that that the United Kingdom's um, labour productivity is behind that of France and Germany, uh, for for example. Uh, but I, but I also point out, so it's obvious, which is that the economy has continued to to grow. Uh, so it's not a story of uh, of, of decline. It's, uh, of course, a story of continuing relative decline, certainly by comparison with China. But I don't see that relative decline happening only in in the recent past. Indeed, that the most spectacular British relative decline took place between 1940 and 1945. Um, so, so, um, so no, no. I, I mean, I, I, um, I, I, I hope my, my, my work takes us away from the whole decline. Uh, an anti-declinist um, uh, uh, frame because I, d- I don't see it as as, uh, as very 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 productive. Uh, and the key point the key point about relative uh, success and relative decline is that the main cause of that is not anything that happens in in, in Britain, but what happens in the rest of the world. Uh, yeah. So I, de- I define declinism as the incorrect belief that Britain's relative position in the world was determined by Britain. Yeah. And specifically by British faiths. Yeah. yeah. Uh, that's absolutely not the case. I mean, well, sorry, absolutely not the case. There might be a, a small fraction of the relative decline, which is due to British uh, uh, deficiencies. But if, if the United Kingdom had the most efficient economy in the world today, it would still have declined relatively pretty mm. well as much as it actually has. And I think that point about the in, internal or external explanations for, for relative... I guess relative economic performance, but also relative world prestige of different states is something which, um, to bring it back just briefly to to Brexit, definitely played an important role. Um, and you did you did kind of mention it earlier, but maybe just to unpack this a little bit. But what do you think the role of some of these declinist narratives have been around Brexit? Um, and I guess in particular, do you think it's maybe the case that that liberal europhile perspective the kind of hardcore remainers that that in fact has perhaps the strongest underlying declinist narrative it's the desire to keep a seat at the top table and punch above our weight through the eu that kind of drives some of that almost frenzy to 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 stay part of this influential club oh yes i mean i think that's a very important point and i think a lot of the arguments for going into the EC in the in the late sixties and uh, and seventies uh, were were of exactly that sort. Um, that's to say, this is the only way of preserving British power and perhaps uh, enhancing it uh, as well. And we've and you're very right to to, to to point to very very similar arguments uh, amongst Remainers uh, um, uh, recently. But I, I but I think the most striking um, aspect of um, uh, of all this is is really the, the the Brexiteers taking up an anti anti declinist position because it's not it's not an obvious position for them to take up. In fact, it's a mm. it's, it's a rather silly one because uh, it, it, what it's uh, uh, saying is actually we've done very well since Thatcher uh, while being in the EU. Yeah, uh, so what's, I, what's the argument for leaving then? It's yeah. it it is quite yeah. strange how I think it's almost been in in that case that you that you point out there it's been a a, a mirror image it's like if if the Brexiteer position um, is anti-declinist then the the um, the kind of Remain one must be 
must be its opposite there's a kind of uh, i mean it gets it gets quite quite simplified obviously in these kind of um debates but i guess there's there's not that much reference actually to what's happened over the course of the 20th century history but just the the myths and the ideas that we've been um taught i guess Absolutely, that's really important. That that uh, the, the Brexit debates have nothing to do with history and uh, 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 actual history, and they have nothing to do with uh, contemporary uh, reality um, beyond a you know, superficial uh, uh, similarity in, in some cases. Yeah. Yeah, that's very very important to remember. It is a it is an extraordinarily ideological um, uh, set set of uh, set of set of set of debates. It's uh, uh, and they they play on on um, on, 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 on histories which are themselves um, very, 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 uh, very misleading, and, and actually different kinds of histories in, in, in rather complicated ways. And I think the Brexiteer ideologues tend to be um, uh, free trading liberals who who don't recognise the world as uh, as changed at non tariff barriers and more important than tariff barriers and, and, and so on, and, and don't understand the, the the relative decline of the, the United Kingdom, which is which is uh, centrally important. Uh, and um, uh, and then you have the Brexit voters uh, uh, who've been invited to vote for for a nationalist uh, uh, politics um, for a return uh, not to the Edwardian years, but I, I would suggest to the to the 1950s, 1960s, and 1970s, when we had a, a, a reasonable approximation of a of a national uh, British uh, economy. And indeed, it's it's uh, it's very very important to note that the people who voted for Brexit are old people. I mean, people who came to maturity in exactly the period I'm 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 referring to. And, and the division, the political division, ideological division along uh, lines of age, uh, seems to me uh, insufficiently uh, commented on. I think it's a, it's a fundamentally important change in, in in the nature of our of our politics and our ideological debates. But it's really important that these older to note these older people aren't uh, uh, aren't uh, talking about their own history. They're they're, they're talking about mythological histories, mm. essentially mythological histories of, of World War Two. And I just wrote a piece for the New Statesman, which Andrew Neil has taken up today and taken offence at. And you know, hundreds of people have chipped in with uh, stories about you know, communist professors doing the country down. And, yeah, they clearly <laughs> have. They, most fascinating. They clearly haven't read the piece because they denounced me for, for for believing things which I obviously don't believe because they're in the article uh, itself, let alone what I've what I've written uh, uh, elsewhere. So there's an incredible kind of sensitivity yeah. about the story of uh, not the story, a story of World War Two, a 1960s and 1970s story of of, mm. uh, of world of World War Two, the kind of Dad's Army version of World War Two. Yeah. So yeah, no, our, it, our political culture is in, in a very sorry, uh, very sorry place. I mean, this isn't the the political culture you you associate with a with a with a thrusting intelligent global elite. This is a this is a political culture you associate with well, um, uh, banana monarchy. You know, it's pretty <laughs> it's pretty low level stuff, isn't it? The low, I mean, so the low level of the elite and public culture in general is something um, is something I want to come back to. But just before that, I want to just briefly touch again on um, how declinism played out with certain factions on the left, kind of somewhat counterintuitively, because yes. it's a story, I suppose, that's you know frequently associated with the right. 
But um, as you make, you mean, uh, we had a Twitter exchange about this, but also, I mean, you make a big deal of it in the book, is how important declinism was to um, the New Left Review, to the Communist Party earlier, um, when they championed British industry against British globalism and finance along largely nationalist lines, yep. but especially later with the New Left Review. And they took the line, and I'm obviously abbreviating here, but that they saw the failure to crush the aristocracy as warping Britain's national development. And that seems to me to have kind of very specific implications for British left-wing politics, because um, that view of um, the Britain kind of lagging behind other industrial powers that had been more successful at modernizing, it seems to me that was um, uh, that allowed them to stave off radical working class politics because they were holding out for a fabled bourgeois modernization. And it made them sympathetic, I think, to all sorts of um, developments, such as New Labour's promises of constitutional renovation, um, the Charter 88 phenomenon, where there was um, the push to um, develop a written British constitution, which has been revived again slightly since Brexit. Um, so all of that seems the way in which um, the New Left Review adopted some of these narratives of decline seemed to me to have had important implications for how British left wing politics played out in the last quarter of the 20th century. Yes, I, I very much agree with you. Uh, let, me, let me preface my answer by, by saying that if, if I were kind of summing up what my book was challenging in the historiography, I'd say two, two things. One, so, the social democratic rise of the welfare state story, which is the dominant academic story. Yeah? And secondly, the, the new left review, uh, Perry Anderson, Tom Nairn story, uh, developed in the early mid 1960s, which I take to be the, the richest intellectually of, of the framings of 20th century and indeed earlier British uh, history. Yes, it's both, it's both those, both those things. Uh, now, uh, I I, uh, I do challenge the the Nan Anderson thesis, uh, partly along the lines that E. P. Thompson challenged those theses in uh, in 191665 uh, by stressing, as Thompson did, the importance of political economy uh, and the importance of uh, of uh, natural science to to British uh, British ideology. These aren't characteristic of uh, aristocratic. Uh, 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 formations, but but in many many ways as uh, uh, as well. To 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 answer your your specific uh, question, I uh, uh, I make a kind of very kind of Latin American, uh, recherche Latin American joke uh, about um, uh, about the left declinists, yeah. and that is that, that they're just like Latin American uh, dependency theorists, dependistas. Yeah. Uh, and what do they have in common? Actually, not Marxism, but nationalism. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Once you scratch yeah. below the surface, I realize I'm being controversial. Scratch below the surface. Uh, uh, the, uh, 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 dependency theorists and uh, and uh, 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 nationalists are, are, are fundamentally critics of free trade and yeah. uh, proponents of Listian national uh, development. Yeah. So, so, so my big argument against uh, the um, the New Left Review uh, critiques of the sixties is they're basically nationalist critiques, uh, yeah. and, and they are uh, nationalists just as the Social Democrats are, are nationalists, and just as many conservatives are, are nationalists. Uh, 
so um, uh, uh, anti-imperialism is a, is a classic nationalist uh, uh, position. Uh, uh, and you have anti-imperialists of the right in post-war Britain, Enoch Powell, uh, and you have many, many anti-imperialists of the left, uh, um, much more, much more uh, obviously. But the critique of British imperialism is is the same as the dependista critique of of um, of uh, uh, global capitalism. Indeed, uh, imperialism is also the term that's used uh, in that in in that context, and that is that that is interested in itself, yeah. Uh, and systematically underdevelops the nation. Yeah, it's exactly the same argument. Yeah. So yeah. the Argentine left is saying the same thing as the as the uh, as the as, 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 as the British left, and and indeed you can mount the critique that 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 that, uh, that you just uh, you just did that um, uh, that the, the, the politics of, of these positions is to is to is to create a radical modernizing bourgeoisie. Yeah. yeah. Uh, and indeed, it's, it's, it's no surprise that, uh, that Perry Anderson in 64, um, and even perhaps into 65, was very keen on, on Harold Wilson, uh, yeah. a classic uh, bourgeois modernizer amongst uh, uh, British politicians of the, of the centre-left. Uh, centre Absolutely. And indeed, I mean, this was part of their hope, I think, in um, Perry Anderson has somewhat switched his views on British membership of the European Union, but their support for entry in um, in the 70s was based, I think, as part of this justification of that it would help to modernise the um, decrepit old British state, as they always saw it. Um, so yes, I, I, I it, have to look into that. But, but certainly, I, mean, I think Tom Nairn is writing in the 70s on these on these these questions is exceptionally interesting, exceptionally good. I mean, one of the very few analysts actually to 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 analyse the nationalism of the of the left, in fact. Though yeah. uh, he didn't take the, the the argument to the extreme position I just had. One, so this occurred to me um, uh, since we since we invited you onto the podcast. I read something came up on social media by Mike Davis, where he talked about how um, there's an Etonian clique at the heart of the New Left Review, and I wondered if um, part of the reason that the New Left Review was so um, taken with these narratives of decline, this kind of inverted nationalism, was because precisely because they were such elite figures, so that they were all showering together when they're 11 years old with the rulers of the country or whatever, or people who would, would, future, uh, would be rulers of the country. And I wondered if there's some, there's just a, the fact of their sociological background partly helps explain why it was so alluring to them, even if they came at it from the left rather than from the right. I mean, perhaps I, I I I wouldn't want to overdo that. They certainly weren't all um, uh, Etonians, but uh, I I think there's there's maybe something more specific and more interesting to uh, to, to note, uh, and and that is that they uh, most most of the most of the people in Europe in 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 the fifties and and sixties uh, went to Oxford or Cambridge. Yeah. And they were certainly very disappointed, I think, with the official education that they got there. Yeah. So they, they, they had a very uh, uh, strong sense of the intellectual backwardness of uh, a British elite educational uh, establishments. And I think that, that, that certainly helps to explain the, the, the focus on creating uh, a new intellectual uh, cadre, uh, new framings for uh, wow. understanding British, uh, British society.
one final question on declinism, um, which is only which is to ask, how far did it help lay the grounds for Thatcherism? And if you could maybe talk us through um, how those debates parlayed into um, justifying the Thatcher project and how far Thatcher succeeded in um, uh, dispelling ideas of decline or how far that was her political project at all. Yes, I mean, it's, it's really important to understand that uh, declinism uh, was a feature of left discourse as much as right discourse. Yeah? And if you, if you look at the, the mid-70s, uh, I mean, Tony Benn is a, de- is a declinist. Yeah. I mean, he's arguing you've got to take radical uh, new approaches to the British economy because it's in an utter mess. Yeah? Uh, 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 Thatcher's doing the same. Uh, she also also believes that things have gone very very uh, wrong, have done for a long time, and you need radical solutions. Of course, the radical solutions are are are, are very different. But there was a, there was a fair bit of overlap in the positions. Um, uh, for example, the nature of the British elite, the nature of the British civil service. Yeah, uh, I mean, both insisted on on the, on the stories that the civil service was full of classicists and possibly uh, historians who didn't understand the the modern the modern world and and um, and 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 all and all and all and all the rest of it. Now, the left responded to the Thatcher project in a rather interesting way. It, it said that this isn't uh, a a a, um, a real uh, uh, counter declinist project. Uh, rather, it is a reinforcement, a radical reinforcement of um, the factors which caused the decline in the first place, yep. uh, i.e. stressing finance, i.e. stressing international trade, um, uh, stressing the, uh, the the market rather than, than, state, uh, than state intervention. So even at the height of Thatcher, you get um, you, you get declinism on the left and on, on the uh, and, on, and, on, and on the right. So you get the extraordinary spectacle of a hard nationalist uh, declinist, Corelli Barnett, writing a book called *The Audit of War*. Mm. The, the war is the Second World War, yes again. Uh, who is celebrated amongst the Thatcherites, yeah, uh, and indeed is taken up by Perry Anderson at the New Left uh, uh, Review, and, and my book, was, you, you may have seen, was reviewed in the in, uh, in the current issue actually of the, of the New Left Review, um, and I'm rather beaten about the head um, yeah. with the supposed <laughs> uh, empirical riches of uh, Corelli Barnett's analysis of the British yes. uh, uh, condition. I mean, arguments yeah. that I and others disposed of um, many decades uh, decades ago. So uh, I say to 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 the, to the wide world that uh, that's uh, that's listening listen listen listening in. Uh, British historiography is a pretty strange beast, um, yeah. you know, with lots of lots of strange arguments. Um, uh, um, flaring up on the on the left and uh, and the right, strange overlap between left and right um, right positions. Yeah. Now, did Thatcher did Thatcher reverse the British decline? Uh, no, absolutely not. Um, uh, uh, it, um, it 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 may may have got kind of stabilised relative to to much, but not certainly not all of the uh, EU. But of course, in, in, in global terms, the British declines continue to pace. But to return to the earlier point, that's largely because um, uh, uh, we've seen a, a radical transformation in the world economy, the emergence of, of uh, Asian uh, mm. economies, not least, of course, China. 
which completely changes Britain's place in, in the world. You know, a tiny change in, 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 in the size of the Chinese economy has, has much more effect on, on Britain's relative position than a, than a massive uh, um, um, change in the, in the scale of the British economy. Mm. So maybe just to take a step back from, I guess, Thatcherism and, and put it <clears throat> maybe into the wider kind of context of, of post-war British history, um, I think one of the most striking subversions of conventional narrative that you undertake in the book is is precisely in this post-war period. And usually this is cast um, as first from 1945 to, say, 1973, 1975. We have Keynesian social democratic welfare state, does lots of economic planning. And then we have a radical break and a shift to neoliberalism, Thatcherism, free markets through kind of the overturning of that prior consensus. Um could you just talk us through a little bit why you're unsatisfied with that conventional framing? Yes, sure. Uh, let me put a, 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 a small uh, reservation. Uh, it, it is the case that the the the, the book's uh, treatment of the post Second World War years is seen as the as the as the the the, the, um, the most interesting, uh, the most uh, the most the most novel, the most out, outrageous. Uh, but it's only half, uh, well, it's less than half the book. It's a third of the book, actually. Mm. Uh, uh, and and I, I do have some, I think, original things to say about the, the uh, pre-1945 period, um, which uh, rather bear on my analysis of the of the uh, of of, mm. of of the post-war war, war, war period, but let, let me just respond to you to directly first to say yes, um, I. I um, I think it's really rather interesting that we have, uh, particularly strongly for, for the UK, but it applies to other, other, uh, for other countries uh, uh, as well, this notion that from 1945, sometimes from earlier, we have something called the welfare state, we have something called Keynesianism, and that all adds up to something called social democracy. Yeah? And that all of this was overturned by something called uh, neoliberalism. Mm. in the 1970s 1980s and what i've done really is just to to to, to ask you know where does that narrative come from uh, yeah. and and my answer is that it comes from a, a particular kind of nationalist social democratic historiography established like the uh, the left declinism in the in in the 1960s which tells the story of Britain as one of the uh, of radical transformation, actually typically during the war, not in 19, 1945, where a new welfare state and Keynesianism is installed. Yeah, it's a story driven by uh, liberals and social democrats, and, and they, they see all the creativity in modern Britain mm. uh, in those uh, uh, in those parties, in, in those, those those fractions of the um, of, of, of the elite. And it sees that as overthrown, that, that uh, consensus, uh, uh, which is a consensus um, on the, on the centre-left's uh, ground, uh, overthrown by Thatcherism and, um, and, and neoliberalism. And I just don't buy that story. Yeah, Right. I, I, I don't buy the story that Keynesianism is central. Yeah. Mm. And, and I'm not alone in that. I mean, people who, who are great experts on this uh, would, 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 would say that. And I, and I certainly don't buy the story of welfareism as essential. And one of my key arguments there is to 
undermine the, 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 the story, empirically undermine the story, that um, the, the, the welfare state is dreamt up by liberals in the Edwardian years and brought to fruition by Labour in 1945 with the help of uh, the liberal uh, William Beveridge uh, in the latter years of the, of the Second World War. Uh, I point out, as, as, uh, as a few others uh, also have, that the British welfare state of the interwar years, or from the 1920s, mm. was a very comprehensive one, the most comprehensive in the world, probably, in fact, yeah? Yeah. Uh, covering the working class. Yeah? Actually, sorry, just just to, to interject here, could, could you tell us a little, um, you, you might have been going on to do this, but could you tell us a little bit more about this? Because I think this interwar period is is really important for how you overturn that that kind of post-war and particularly welfareist um, narrative, and I think it's perhaps one of the periods of British history that that doesn't um, doesn't stand out in the in the 20th century, perhaps as much as as it as it should or could. Yes, absolutely. I mean, I, I think there are some really important changes around the around the First World War, and um, and the question of of, of, of welfare is, um, is 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 a central one. Uh, I mean, the essence of the, of the system is is the insurance uh, uh, principle. But it's not the same as the continental European insurance principle in which workers pay a certain proportion of their income uh, and receive a certain proportion of their income back in, um, uh, in, uh, in, in benefits. In the British case, it's a fixed rate contribution and a fixed rate benefit. Yeah. Uh, and, and, it, uh, and it's also pretty universal. So every worker, nearly every worker, I should say, uh, in uh, the inter interwar years, uh, who earns below um, a, a certain level, and that level is the level at which you start paying income tax. In other words, the working class does not pay income tax. Yeah, the working mm. class has this special form of taxation, which is a poll tax. Yeah, a po well, well, there are two kinds of taxes: but this poll tax for welfare and consumption taxes. Yeah, on, particularly on beer and uh, uh, and alcohol and, uh, mm -hmm. and 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 tobacco, both deeply re regressive taxes. Yeah, yeah, that's the key point. Yeah, and the uh, um, the point about the, the, the insurance principle is uh, uh, with that if you use a flat rate, uh, um, uh, the poorer workers will ensure that the contributions are kept low. And therefore, benefits are kept low uh, 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 as well. So it's an extraordinary system of uh, uh, that that acts to limit, automatically limit uh, welfare uh, ex uh, expenditure. Now, this applies to uh, uh, um, uh, uh, health insurance. It applies to unemployment insurance, and it applies uh, to um, the old age pension and, and, and the widow's pension. It's a pretty comprehensive system that's created right. in, in the 20s on this insurance principle, on this particular version of the insurance, mm. uh, insurance principle. And this is a lot earlier than often the, the welfare state is thought to have, have begun. Well, precisely, because, because the, 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 the standard law story that Labour tells itself is it created the welfare state and there was no welfare before that. Yeah, um, and the argument is particularly made around around health, as if there was no publicly fun financed health in the UK before um, before uh, the, the, the the National Health Service. Completely untrue. There's a very extensive 
public hospital and uh, uh, and uh, and health insurance um, uh, uh, system. Yeah, well, I could argue it was one of the better ones in in the world. In fact, but that gets written written out, and 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 the fact that. Um, that if you're unemployed in, in, in the United Kingdom in, in the in interval years, with some very few exceptions, you would have received uh, one or other sorts of benefits. Uh, so very low uh, levels of benefits, yeah, yeah? Um, and and done in in, in 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 not always very pleasant ways, but the benefits were there. You did not starve if you were yeah. unemployed in the United Kingdom. The state capacity was there. The infrastructure was there. I guess to kind of Absolutely. With this, with this as the the context, how does this then, um, I guess, inform this um, sort of overturning of that that post-war um, narrative? Sorry, I kind of yeah. asked you a question, then asked you a, another question to to push it back in yeah. in time. But yeah, yeah. the, the post-war question to return to that one. Yes, exactly. So so then you are with this new picture, the inter interwar years. You can you can ask more precisely. Well, what is the difference between the post-45 welfare state and the interwar welfare state. Um, and there, there are a, a, a number of interesting answers. The first is that it's more universal. It goes from 80% to, I don't know, 95% of the population uh, in, terms of, in terms of coverage. It is much more centrally controlled by the state, by civil servants, rather than being um, uh, managed by sometimes private uh, agencies. It's much better coordinated, the different bits um, all come together in essentially one uh, uh, system. And in the case of health, uh, you have a, a single national system rather than lots of lots of uh, lots of local uh, local systems. And crucially, health is financed through taxation, not through this insurance principle. So we have we have a process of nationalization and a, a extension of the uh, uh, universalism. Of the of, of the system, if you look at total expenditures, one sees that actually the the, the increase between the 1930s and the 1940s isn't mm. that great. Yeah, so maybe a 50% increase. Yeah, uh, um, uh, but what increases more over that same period in terms of state expenditures is military expenditure. Yeah. So that makes you think about the British post-war state in a very different uh, mm. way. It's not just a welfare state, which is the, which is the the straightforward reading of eighty percent mm. of the historiography. It's also a uh, a warfare state, mm. as I as I uh, as I as I called it. And if you think about the economy, you know what are the what are the great uh, what are the great uh, uh, changes? Well, Keynesianism is just part of the story, but Keynesianism isn't isn't really uh, possible, you know, without a. Uh, uh, a well uh, delineated national economy, uh, and what yeah. makes what makes the economy national? Uh, the answer: import controls uh, of many sorts. Actually, uh, uh, so uh, so you you go from um, a country that had been quite exceptional in in its uh, orientation towards free free trade. Uh, to a country which becomes like other countries in imposing import uh, import uh, uh, controls. Indeed, there are great drives after 1945 for the United Kingdom to become uh, as self-sufficient as possible, not least in food. Mm. I mean, it would have been unthinkable to an Edwardian liberal 
uh, to aim mm. for British self-sufficiency in, in, well, in anything, but particularly in, uh, in, in mm. food and, and insanity. Um, and becoming like Germany or, 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 mm. or, or, or France was, um, was uh, uh, a tantamount to impoverishing oneself. Mm. You know? So, so the, the broad argument then is that if you, if you compare, actually not just with the interwar years, but actually with World War II, uh, we have a, a nationalization of the economy, I say a nationalization of society, a nationalization of ideology um, uh, uh, as well. So, so what happens to, I guess, to, to change this um, in the 70s? This is the, the kind of, yeah, from, from that point, where do, how do we get to where we are now? Yeah, I mean, not everybody is reconciled to this this new national protectionist Britain. There are there are there are pressures to uh, to liberalise the economy. Indeed, attempts to get into the common market in the late fifties, early sixties uh, are precisely about liberalising the British economy. It's not about going into a protectionist Europe. It's it's about leaving a protectionist uh, 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 United United uh, United Kingdom. Um, I think there's a although. No, I, I want to insist that there are some important successes in in state-led modernization after after the war. There are there are there are there are there are failures. There are irrationalities uh, there. Uh, so people do want to get some people do want to get rid of uh, these uh, these these programs. Uh, but most important of all, I think, is is, is something that's not uniquely British, which is that you you have um, uh, the rise of the um, uh, trade union movement. Uh, I mean, the trade union movement uh, mm. peaked not in 1945 or 1955 or 1965, but 1979, actually, uh, in terms of membership and uh, 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 density. Uh, so we, we've got a, 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 a challenge from the organized uh, uh, working class. And we have a, um, uh, 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 the rise of the left. Uh, and I would argue that only in the 1970s that you get, you know, a serious, sustained, social democratic, strictly speaking, uh, critique of British capitalism, yeah. which informs uh, labour programmes. You know, in a, in a way it hasn't done since uh, since 1945, really. Mm. So, um, from from the point of view of the um, of, of, of the, the, the British elite, the British financial industrial uh, uh, elite, the world looks looks rather threatening in the uh, in in the nineteen in in the nineteen seventies. So we have what, what what I call in the book a rulers' revolt. Yeah. At a certain mm. point, um, this elite says, uh, "We're not we're not taking this anymore. We are we are going to to um, to counterattack," mm. and and they do that very 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 effectively. And I don't see this just as a matter of, uh, of markets. It's one reason I object to the term neoliberalism. Um, this isn't the, the, um, the result of kind of new ideas about um, the effectiveness of markets as opposed to old ideas about the effectiveness of the, of the, uh, of the state. This is, a, is about a, a rebalancing of the economy and, and, and society in favour of the owners of, of, of property. So one of the one of the points I make in, in, in the book actually is to is to look at real interest rates, uh, and you know, there are two two periods where uh, there are very high real interest uh, uh, rates, and that's the nineteen the early nineteen twenties, especially, but through the twenties, and um, uh, the nineteen eighties. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Uh, and, and what do high real interest rates do? Well, they take money from 
from from from borrowers and um, and give it to to those who have lent and and more generally you know, redistribute money from the property less to the to those with to those with property right so so i mean that's not to do with markets that's that's to do with with the power of property mm. so the the wealth um driving the change rather than the um uh, market activities in themselves exactly i mean it's, yeah i mean you, you could argue Related. this market market activities themselves that that, uh, that 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 do it but i want to resist that argument i don't say well and certainly something like that is is also happening yeah but there's some also very direct ways in 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 which the state acts to uh, uh, redistribute um, income and wealth. So uh, I wanted for, to for, sorry. For example, to go back to the, to the question of taxation, yeah. uh, uh, there's a great uh, uh, play made of the reduction of taxes. Well, it's only the reduction of income taxes, yeah. consumption taxes, uh, um, uh, regressive taxes, VAT. Yeah. Uh, and indeed, uh, national insurance contributions go up, and they remain regressive, not not anywhere near as regressive as they had been in in the interwar years and indeed in the, in the 40s and 50s. But um, they were still more aggressive than, than uh, the national insurance tax was more aggressive than than, than income tax. Yeah. So, so this is this is in the market. You're putting up regressive taxes <laughs> uh, says it all. Yeah, yeah. One. Um I, I suppose I'd like to talk a bit about um, how the new dispensation is absorbed by the Labour Party when it reforms as new Labour, um, and also to tie that into the wider narrative arc in the book. Um, so one overarching theme in the book seems to me to be it's principally the Labour Party that builds the British nation, and that is there at the kind of peak of the formation of the British nation at, in the mid-century point. Um, whereas the Tories, through their commitment to empire in the first part of the um, century and then later under Thatcherism, um, their adoption of a more liberal globalism, uh, they always had a more internationalist connection across the 20th century. At least this is the way I understand the story you want to tell. Yeah. Um, so I suppose I wanted So if the Labour Party helped build the British nation, I wondered if the implication was that it was also the Labour Party that unravelled the British nation, a process that started with Mrs Thatcher, but that ended with New Labour, and particularly perhaps in the part of the story that you don't tell in the early years or the first decade of the 20th century. And I'm thinking here not only of constitutional devolution in Scotland and Wales, but also the general disintegration of the idea of a public, um, of a nation, in, in effect, of a, a single kind of political entity that could be um, consciously directed by the state. Yes, I, 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 absolutely. Uh, I, I, I see that the, the Tory party into the 1950s as imperialist rather than national in, in orientation. And that's a, an important part of the book, actually, to argue that, that there is an imperial identity on the right, not a national um, uh, ident identity. Uh, I mean, Labour had been a, a free trading party into the into the 1930s, but I see it becoming the party of the of the nation uh, yeah. from 1945 uh, uh, um, onwards. And it it um, it remains the party of the of, of the nation. I, I think under even under even under Neil Neil Kinnock. Uh, I mean, he insists that that the party is the party of uh, production. It's it's the party that's going to save the nation from the ravages of Thatcherism. And that's that's a that's the central claim that Labour wants to make under uh, under 
Kinnock. New Labour is indeed different. Yeah? Uh, New Labour throws out uh, uh, old Labour's uh, nationalism, its, uh, its inter interventionism, uh, its declinism actually. It, it, uh, um, it, it insists essentially that the British economy is doing well. Um, uh, it, uh, it embraces globalization. There is no alternative to, to global, to, to globalization. It, um, it continues the privatization of key state functions, not least in, in, in health, the care homes. Yeah. Uh, uh, massively privatized under, under new labor, not under, not under the Tories action, actually PFI schemes, uh, strange uh, financing systems for for uh, hospitals and, uh, and, uh, and schools uh, really only gets going under 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 new labor so yes new labor undermines the capacity of the of the state um, uh, to act there is um, however a, a certain kind of nationalism in in new labor which um, focuses on a certain notion of british exceptionalism uh, which is which uh, uh, sees uh, the UK as global, yeah. so it's yeah. a kind of it's a kind of it's kind of Edwardian liberal thing uh, uh, again. Um, uh, and global Britain is is a phrase used by um, by, by by Gordon Brown, and uh, Gordon Brown also wants to create a British nationalism as against a, a Scottish and a Welsh and an Irish nationalism. They can't possibly call it nationalism because, from his position, um, uh, nationalism is only something that um, enemies of the United Kingdom or indeed the British Empire uh, yeah. could, could possibly um, uh, uh, yeah. believe in. You cannot, by definition, be a United Kingdom nationalist because nationalism is, is, is bigoted and small-minded and, uh, and insular. And the United Kingdom is, by definition, global, outward-looking and, uh, and uh, uh, yeah. generally, generally uh, exceptional. So New Labour is, is, a strange, is a strange beast. It does have a certain nationalism. Um, but also a very particular kind of internationalism, which uh, which kind of leads it into um, into Iraq, for for example. Mm. So, just a, a question, maybe on the, I guess, intellectual roots or precursors of um, New Labour. One fascinating trope that you develop in the book is how far so many of the themes that would become familiar under um, New Labour were actually developed in the old British Communist Party and its uh, now defunct magazine, Marxism Today. Um, could you tell us a little bit about this unexpected uh, story? Yeah, well, uh, um, maybe not the old Communist Party. I think, um, should we call it a new, a new Communist Party of the late 70s and 1980s, the New Times mm. Communist yeah. Party of Marxism um, uh, uh, today? They're, they're, they're not tankies, if I can use the, the vernacular. Yeah. Um, the, uh, yes, there is, there is a... There is, um, uh, uh, development of the, of, of the idea that um, that we've gone into a radically new kind of capitalism, that we're, we've left Fordism and we're now in a post-Fordist stage. We don't have mass production. We have something called flexible uh, specialization. Um, uh, uh, consumption is the issue, not, not really production uh, uh, anymore. The um, uh, the old manual working class is finished as a as a motor of uh, motor of mm. history. Yes, and these are all things that are that are indeed um, uh, taken up by the uh, by 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 new labour. But but um, I, I I gloss it in, in the following way. I you know I don't think these ideas 
the, the new communists were original to them. I mean, they they right. were they they were reading the bourgeois magazines and um, and uh, reframing uh, uh, existing stories a little bit. You know, just as uh, uh, Perry Anderson and Tom Nairn you know, were reading bourgeois magazines in the in the nineteen fifties and nineteen sixties and uh, and retelling uh, those uh, declinist uh, stories in in, in Marxist uh, in Marxist language. But yes, I, I, I'm, I'm obviously a critic of the, uh, of, the, of the New Times stuff. And indeed, I was at the time. I remember uh, um, people going on about the end of uh, Fordism and the end of mass production at the very moment when um, uh, the British state supports the Ford Motor Company, no less, yeah. <laughs> in creating a massive, massive car engine factory in, in Bridgend in South Wales, which I think is only just closed, actually. Um, <laughs> I mean, it's again. It's it's not about it's not about studying realities. It's uh, uh, it, it's it's about very, telling very particular stories. And one of the things I have to try and do in the book is to study um, uh, economic material realities, whether it's trade or or, or or production or or armaments, because I think they tell a very different story to the stories that we get you know, from 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 reading the monthlies, you know, from from following parliamentary debates. Um, I, I think, uh, and the old British elite was was very knowledgeable about industry and imports and exports mm. and armaments and all these things. And, they were, they, um, uh, and concern about these things was central to their their administrative and, and political practice. Um, but that's 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 no longer no longer the case. I just want to throw in an, another question before we wrap up um, with our final question, but. Would you accept what would be so the declinist case about the British elite in the past um, that they're all um, you know like we said kind of effete effete classicists who who don't understand industry and commerce and um, logistics and organisation and so on um, is that a better characterization of the British elite now I mean not necessarily classicists but this um, that they're all PPEists that they don't have um, the kind of the Cummings vision of the British elite and the cadre of the civil service are they decayed? Would you think by the standards of the past? Um, I, yeah, I mean, you're certainly right that I, I, I take the view that the old elite is not as it, as it was uh, uh, characterised by by Cummings and uh, and so on. Uh, the the new elite is a very different uh, elite. I think it, it is uh, relatively less competent uh, compared to the elites of other other countries and. Uh, I, I, I don't say that in a, uh, uh, because I'm I suddenly turned into 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 a declinist. Um, I, I I think it's um, uh, it's itself a, a a product of relative decline and, and a, a a product of the of the particular political economy that um, that has been followed over the last twenty or thirty years, where you effectively hollowed out the ability of the state uh, 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 to act. Yeah. I say one one could have had a very different kind of uh, Kind of state uh, uh, state elite, but uh, but I think the the point about competence is um, uh, a lack of competence is, is is an important one. I mean, if if uh, I'm to caricature, if one if one um, uh, uh, um, if, if the, the, the British might well have had an image of um, of themselves at least the, the political uh, uh, administrative class as as being. Uh, uh, superior, sophisticated uh, kind of men of the world in the 1950s and and, and 1960s, and might well have regarded 
uh, at least some uh, continentals as uh, as romantic and delusional and corrupt and um, and you're playing to the playing to the playing to the gallery. Uh, I mean, in 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 the view of and, and I mean, people around the world might have, might have shared elements of that uh, of that uh, of that caricature, but. Um, but today the picture is uh, self-evidently very, very, very different. That uh, uh, people like Michel Barnier look like uh, a, a, a British uh, figure from the 1950s and, and, and 1960s, and, uh, uh, and and David Davis and, uh, and Boris Johnson and Liam Fox look like uh, dodgy Southern European um, uh, uh, politicians of, uh, of, of of British caricatures of the of the time, and. Uh, now, I think there is a there is a genuine reversal uh, 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 there, which has certainly not escaped the attention of uh, of foreigners. Yeah, I mean, it is a. Uh, uh, I think the older elite would have would have been revolted by um, uh, by the by the, by the, by the, by, the, by the current crop. Indeed, are I mean, you only have to look at people like Nicholas Soames and Chris Patton and and so on, uh, uh, you know, to see that um, uh, they don't see they don't see themselves uh, uh, in this current uh, current generation yeah um so our last question is um i suppose to see if it's possible to um find the beginning in the end or the end in the beginning because you know that by the end of the 20th century or the eve of the 21st it's some it seems to be something of a return well i say you know to I mean this is the way i read the story or the um the the narrative that you tell, it seems a return to the start of the 20th century for Britain. So um, mm. London is basking in this neo-Edwardian kind of cosmopolitan glamour with its haute cuisine. British capitalism is globalised again. Britain is involved in all these um, small imperial wars again as part of a liberal globalist vision. Um, it's no longer the centre of the world and it's, um, its wealthy elite are um, Indian and Russian oligarchs rather than British mm. industrialists and um, financiers. But I suppose I wanted to. Well, I wanted to check if that, if you saw the, um, if you saw that as part of the of the tale of Britain in the twentieth century, um, and if um, if there's a if there's a, perhaps another way to summarize what if it, if it's another way to summarize what happens across the twentieth century, if it is it liberal globalism, um, and the nationalist kind of interlude of the middle of the twentieth century, and then a return to liberal globalism. There's something in that, and, and that is part of the argument of the of, of, of the book. Um, but there's some heavy ironizing going on here. Uh, I, I certainly want to argue, uh, and this is part of the book we haven't really touched on, that in 1900, right up into the 30s and 40s, uh, the United Kingdom really is unique in in, in, in the world. It 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 it, um, it is open to the world in, in a way uh, no other uh, big state uh, is, and, and that openness is 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 central to to its uh, to its to its nature, yeah. um, that changes radically. Uh, the, the the United Kingdom ceases to be unique, uh, uh, and um, it has not returned to being unique. Yeah. I mean, uh, there are there are lots of places in the world that are globalised in the way the UK is uh, today. Yeah, uh, but I I, I would uh, insist on 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 the point uh, about London being different. Yeah. Uh, uh, I mean, London is a global city with now limited connections to the to the rest of the uh, of, to the the rest of the, of the of the country. It is a radically cosmopolitan 
place. Um, I mean, London was different in many ways uh, in the Edwardian years, but it's a place where British capital was exported to the rest of the world and the income uh, from that capital uh, uh, came back into the into the into, into the into the UK. Uh, yeah. Today, today it's uh, foreign capital which dominates in um, in, in, in London. Um, the British infrastructure is owned, very often owned by by foreign capital, uh, uh, in just the way that uh, the British once owned the infrastructure of of, uh, of half the world. Yeah. So there's, a, there's now a really radical disconnect yeah, between London and the rest of the country between the economics of the city of London and the economics of uh, of the of of the, of the United Kingdom. So yes, you know one one can see London uh, returning to its Edwardian pomp in many many ways, yeah, but um, um, but it's not the centre of an empire. It's not it's not the centre of world trade anymore. Um, it's uh, it's a nice place for oligarchs to to live. It's a very different sort of thing. I mean, we have you know, uh, foreign oligarchs financing a big chunk of uh, of British uh, British conservative political life. Yeah. Uh, uh, unthinkable in the Edwardian years for obvious obvious uh, reasons. Now that doesn't make me a declinist. It just I'm saying it's is actually British politics has become like the politics of well, a, a banana monarchy. Yeah. Well, that's a great, I think we've got our title for the episode right there, um, which is uh, wonderful, actually. <laughs> banana monarchy is a great, uh, that's a great line. Uh, have you used it anywhere else yet? I used it in Oscar and the Guardian uh, last year. All yeah. right. Well, we can, yeah. but you can, you can use we it, can yeah. use it again. Yeah, we'll use it. We can repurpose. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. It's not, it's not been taken up really. Uh, so yeah. fine. Yeah. Time, time for it to be podcasted then. Um, well, thank you very much, David. That's been a really, um, it's been really wonderful to have you on, and um, it's been great to great to talk through the book. It's been a great conversation. Thank you very much for your most interesting questions, all of you.